Hello everyone and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host Simon Skidmore. We are presently working our way through the book of Leviticus. As you may recall, in Exodus the people of Israel are liberated from slavery in Egypt, which marks their conception as an independent people group in their own right. With this development comes the need for the Israelites to develop their own laws, customs and rituals to ensure that mimetic rivalry is controlled within their community. In the latter part of the Exodus narrative, we see these laws developed and a tabernacle constructed to house the primitive sacred. Leviticus then outlines certain sacrifices aimed at avoiding the risk of divine violence. As we saw in the last episode, Leviticus also provides certain guidelines and rituals to manage impurity within the community, which may also threaten to destroy them if it reaches the tabernacle. In chapter 10, we saw the primitive sacred lash out against Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, when they offered unauthorized fire to the Lord. We discussed how this passage employs the image of divine violence to describe the communal lynching of Aaron's two sons. Let's read on now from chapter 10, verse 12. Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and to Ithamar, his surviving sons. Take the grain offering that is left of the Lord's food offerings and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place, because it is your due and your son's due for the Lord's food offerings. For so I am commanded. But the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, you shall eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you. For they are given to you as your due and your son's due from the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the people of Israel. The thigh that is contributed and the breast that is weighed, they shall bring with food offerings of the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be yours and your sons with you as a Jew forever, as the Lord has commanded. Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering. Behold, it was burnt up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it is a most holy thing and has been given to you because you bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord? Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. As we've already discussed, the priesthood receives part of the grain, sin, and guilt offerings as their wages. When a goat was offered as a sin offering, only the visceral fat and kidneys would be burnt upon the Lord's altar, the entrails and skin discarded outside the camp, and the meat given for the priest to eat. Yet on this occasion, the whole goat was burnt up upon the altar as if it were a whole burnt offering. You see what's happened here? Their priests have not followed the exact guidelines which might 
put the people and the priesthood in danger. When Moses finds out, he is furious. We have already seen how flouting the Lord's rules and commands may precipitate an outbreak of divine violence. Moses reminds Aaron's sons that the meat of the sacrifice is given to them as a payment for bearing the sin of the people. From a mimetic perspective, this statement is particularly important because it identifies the priesthood as a communal scapegoat who bear the community's sin. The priesthood are treated like royalty, receiving and eating sacrificial meals in the Lord's presence. According to Gerard, the king is essentially a venerated scapegoat-in-waiting who receives honour and gifts on account of their imminent demise. The scapegoat may manage to transform the community's reverence into real power if they delay their execution long enough. In time, the community come to regard their scapegoat sacrifice as unthinkable, which gives birth to the ancient model of sacred kingship. The Israelite priesthood appears to have been conceived through a similar process. Aaron and his sons have been set apart as communal scapegoats who must bear the community's sins. We see this dynamic play out when Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu are lynched in the midst of a mimetic crisis. Moses then counsels the other priests to seek refuge inside the tabernacle, away from the angry mob. In this way, the remaining members of the priesthood delay their own execution and manage to transform the community's reverence into real political power. Yet to secure this power, the priesthood must provide the community with substitute victims to bear the community's sin in their stead. To this end, the priesthood develops the annual Day of Atonement ritual, which substitutes a goat for the lives of the Israelite priesthood. Let's develop this more as we read on from chapter 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Aaron must not come before the Lord, that is, he must not enter the holiest of holies at any time except for one day a year, the day of atonement. Otherwise he may die. From a mimetic perspective, the Day of Atonement ritual aims to prevent another mob lynching of the priesthood by controlling divine violence. To this end, the divine cloud which represents the presence of mimetic rivalry throughout Exodus must be confined to the holiest of holies within the tabernacle. This passage describes the ideal scenario in which the priesthood survives the primitive sacred while keeping it contained upon the mercy seat within the holiest of holies. But this vocation is very dangerous. If the priests fail to contain the primitive sacred, mimetic violence will be unleashed upon them and the community, perhaps culminating in the communal lynching of more priests. The passage goes on to prescribe various ceremonial washings and specialised clothing the priests must wear to protect themselves from the divine presence. 
the priest must then present a goat and a bull as sin offerings, sprinkling blood around particular tabernacle furnishings. We are told that these rites protect the sacred space from the people's impurity, transgressions and sins. Diligent adherence to these protocols protects the priesthood and the rest of the people from divine violence. While the animal sacrifices described through the book of Leviticus don't seem to follow the pattern of a Gerardian classical double substitution, these sacrifices do reflect a concern for the primitive sacred's violence. In the Day of Atonement, the blood of the sin offering is sprinkled upon the altar and upon the mercy seat of the ark, upon which the Lord appears in a cloud. We have already seen the blood applied to doors and lintels to create a pantomime of the Exodus crisis in Israel's Passover festival. This application of blood reenacts the violent slaying of the Egyptian firstborn on the night of the first Passover, which secured Israel's emancipation. Could the sprinkling of blood upon the mercy seat and altar also reenact the violence of a mimetic crisis? If so, the blood sprinkled upon the Day of Atonement could function as the sanctuary's equivalent of the Passover fixture. On the Passover, blood is painted upon the doorposts and lintels of the Israelite houses, while on the Day of Atonement, blood is sprinkled on the Lord's dwelling place. Perhaps a sprinkling of blood upon the Lord's mercy seat and altar attempts to pacify the primitive sacred by reenacting the violence of a mimetic crisis in a more controlled, less deadly manner. After all, this is the whole aim of ritual, to deal with mimetic rivalry and violence in a safe, non-contagious manner. The death of an animal will not attract blood vengeance, but hopefully still removes the threat of mimetic violence. In this way, the Day of Atonement's various sacrifices and sprinkling of blood achieve atonement for the priesthood and their community. Reading on now from verse 7. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one for the Lord and the other for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat upon which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement through it by sending it away into the wilderness to Azazel. Having purified the tabernacle, Aaron then cast lots to select a scapegoat. Unlike the sacrifices described in Leviticus chapters 1 to 7, the form of the scapegoat ritual, as it was recorded in Leviticus chapter 16, suggests this practice may have evolved from an earlier human scapegoating tradition. You may recall that the selection of human scapegoats is largely an arbitrary process. Driven by mimetic rivalry, the community look for an arbitrary victim to blame for the crisis. 
the scapegoat of Leviticus 16 is also arbitrarily selected as Aaron casts lots to decide which goat will go to Azazel and which will be sacrificed as a sin offering to the Lord. The identity of this Azazel character is uncertain. Some argue that Azazel was a desert-dwelling demon, while others suggest the term simply describes the complete removal of sin from the community. In any case, the scapegoat becomes a means of achieving atonement, that is, removing the risk of divine violence. A human scapegoat achieves the same ends by providing a channel for the community to vent their collective rivalries. Thus the scapegoat of Leviticus chapter 16 resembles the pattern of scapegoating in that it is arbitrarily selected as a channel for the venting of mimetic rivalry. These observations suggest that the scapegoat ritual of Leviticus chapter 16 may represent a true Girardian double substitution as the goat selected by Lot replaces the Israelite priesthood as the community's surrogate victim. Reading on now from verse 20. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is ready. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote location, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Just like the priesthood, the goat selected by Lot on the Day of Atonement bears the community's sin and carries them away from the community. By loading their sins upon the Day of Atonement's scapegoat and expelling it from their presence, the community purge mimetic rivalry from their midst, which allows the people to live peacefully with one another. In this way, the Day of Atonement scapegoat aims to achieve the same ends as the execution of a human scapegoat. From a mimetic perspective, the Day of Atonement scapegoat ritual represents the priesthood's attempt to substitute their own scapegoating with that of a live goat. Through this ritual, the priests attempt to recreate the same catharsis that would otherwise have been achieved through their own scapegoating. Without this animal substitute, members of the priesthood may have been sacrificed to vent mimetic rivalry from the community. Thus, the Day of Atonement ritual keeps the priesthood alive, as the scapegoat bears the community's sin, impurity and trespasses, which might have otherwise led the community to lynch Aaron and his sons. By these means, the Day of Atonement ritual attempts to avoid repeating the communal execution of Aaron and more of his sons. When viewed from this perspective, the scapegoat ritual does seem to resemble a classical Girardian double substitution. First, the lives of the priesthood are substituted for the life of the community. Second, the priesthood substitutes a goat to bear the sins of the community in their stead. 
While the sin offerings performed on the Day of Atonement do not resemble a true Girardian double substitution, they still aim to achieve atonement for the priests and for the community by appeasing the primitive sacred through a bloody pantomime. These observations may shed some light on the power of sacrificial blood to achieve purification and atonement throughout Leviticus. If the sacrificial manipulation of blood represents a pantomime of mimetic bloodshed, then the sprinkling of blood in Leviticus chapters 1 to 7 could also work in a similar way, achieving purification and atonement for its offerer. Of course, as we have discussed previously, we must be careful about interpreting the meaning and function of a particular sacrificial rites, as interpretation is often in the eye of the beholder. That said, when the beholder is looking through the lens of mimetic theory, sacrificial blood appears to represent a purifying pantomime of mimetic violence, which aims to satisfy the primitive sacred's bloodlust. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.